pray. God, this morning we pray that you would lead us to the streams of living water that give life through the power of your Holy Spirit at work through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I bring you greetings this morning from brothers and sisters in both Armenia, Colombia, and Lima, Peru. Um, we spent two weeks looking at the Psalms of Lament, asking the question, can Christians sing sad songs? And uh, it was a very enjoyable time. The answer is yes, by the way. This morning, we are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You can find it on page 555 if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles and in front of you and you want to try and find it, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I wonder if you've ever been in uh, a church service that you'll never forget. Uh, the unforgetfulness of the church service could be because of uh, something amazing that has happened uh, or something amazing that happened. Let me give you one such example. I will never forget the sermon in which the title of the sermon after a number of terrible songs in which I did not know if I was singing to my boyfriend or to Jesus, the title of the sermon was proclaimed, How Not to Fall into Pitfalls, which is not a thing that you can do or a real sentence in English. The pastor then went on to explain why he was depressed at the beginning of a new year and why he would be carrying on the next week to continue to talk about his depression. That was followed by a communion meditation, at which point one of the elders in the church got up and began to read some random part of the life of David, talking about how thank goodness for good or for new years because God lets us start all over again. Let's pray. And then some magical things on some shiny plates got passed out and people took them into their mouths, little biscuits and little cups of liquid, at which point... We were done, and there was an awkward pause. And then the youth pastor got up and goes, oh, I guess I have the benediction. Wearing a Seahawks jersey, saying, um, go Seahawks. At which point I desired to burn the building down. We left wondering, what in the heck did we just experience? Now, the question I have for us this morning is, does what we do in church matter? And if it does matter, then, just assuming that it does for a moment, then how should we do church well? Big, big questions. The preacher, the author of this book, helps us to give some answers to those questions this morning. Out of probably the most li least likely place we would think to find it, the book of Ecclesiastes. A few weeks ago, we left off in chapter 4, and we learned about the pain of loneliness and, at the same time, the joy of friendship. Uh, the preacher pointed out the tragedy of 
slaving away at one's work with no real enjoyment, no real goal, and no real companions. He went on to highlight how great it is to have others in one's life. The toil will always be toilsome, but to toil for an objective beyond oneself makes the toil worthwhile. There is comfort as well as protection when one is not only thinking of themselves. This week, the preacher takes a radical departure from what he is just saying, as he is wont to do often in the book of Ecclesiastes. He kind of ends that section, he's like, all right, now I'm going on to something else. Again, the preacher, is what the title that he has given to himself, is here one who collects wisdom to then disperse it to others. So there will be jumps and themes from time to time. But again, the whole point of this book being... How does one go about living one's life well? If you will, this is a book, a manual for living wisely before God. Coming at it from a rather interesting perspective. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God... Do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we saw a few years ago in the book of Proverbs, sometimes it's hard to teach wisdom literature because it's just kind of right there. I think I could probably just say amen and go home, and we might be as benefited as whatever is about to come out of my mouth. And I am tempted to do so, but... It would be an amazing sermon, right? I I will not do so. I will seek to be of some benefit to us this morning. I'd like to title this passage, The Preacher Goes to Church. This passage breaks into four parts, each marked off by a command. Four commands that run through this section. In verse 1, guard your steps. Verses 2 through 3, be not rash with your mouth. Verses 4 through 5, pay what you vow. Verses 6 through 7, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Here is the very, very simple thing I want to get across today. We should listen much, speak little, and do what we say we'll do. 
should listen much, speak little, and do what we say we will do. You might be thinking, I already know that, which I hope you do. I wonder if you would say as readily, I already do all of that. I hope that we would all say that, but what I hope to highlight this morning is how hard it is to do, and for some of us who are wondering why they should this morning, or are struggling to remember why they should, to hope to remind you why to do the very basic things in life are wise things indeed. All of what the preacher tells us here this morning is incredibly practical wisdom for how to go to church. Begins in verse 1, guard your steps. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Up to this point, the preacher has been kind of observing all of life and he will continue to do so, just kind of wandering throughout the world seeing and highlighting for us the enigmatic nature of all of life. Everything kind of seems to be vanity, which isn't useless, but full of goodness and evil at the same time, value and worthlessness. Just kind of, what is it that everything is for? Now he turns his sights to going to worship and what to do when we get there. The preacher, interestingly enough, begins by telling his readers that it's not just what they do when they get to worship, but it's what they do on the way to worship. A laid-back approach to going to church is the very height of foolishness. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Be careful how you come to church. Why? Well, because God is there. Now, this would have been, admittedly, much more true in this time, in a sense, in which it was written, than today. Uh, admittedly, oftentimes, many people think that today, this building and many buildings like it are just like the temple. The temple, the house of God as it's put here, was the very special dwelling place of God. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was seen as God's footstool. God is everywhere, all times, all places, but his particularly special presence was amongst his people in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the very heart of the temple, resting on the Ark of the Covenant. Only one person, the high priest, once a year ever saw that room, and then when he went into that room, it was full of the smoke of incense, just so he could get a very clear picture of what was going on in there. That's not this room in any way, shape, or form. So does it have anything to do with us today? You might even go on and say, Jeremy, here's the thing. You see, I've read the New Testament, which you should do, by the way, if you've never done. And in the New Testament, I know that Jesus is the temple. You've said that, Jeremy. Jesus is the true temple. Not only that, but now that Jesus has ascended to the Father in heaven after his death and resurrection, he has then sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of those who trust in Jesus Christ. And now we are the temple. So you see, friends, in one sense, this is not the temple at all. In another sense, this is way more the temple than the temple ever was. How's that for some 
biblical theology. I just, did, I just preached the whole Bible right there. Here's the thing. That might lead you to believe I don't have to guard my steps when I come to the house of God. You see, because I, I am always in the presence of the Lord. Friends, that is a true statement. That makes whatever the preacher is about to say way more relevant to you than any Jew that ever existed. You see, much of his days were not walking to the temple of the Lord. However, if we collectively are the temple in which the Holy Spirit resides, and this is true like all times, all places, but just to keep it simple, we'll go with the kind of original author's intent. When the gathered body comes together to worship God, but do not think for a minute that God's nearness would then be a reason to approach God in a casual way. Once the worshiper arrives, then God's presence, then she is encouraged to pursue a particular path with a better than statement. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What is the worshiper supposed to listen to when they draw near to the house of God? Well, that would be God's word. Again, living in our time and place is a particular blessing, but it's also a particular curse when you read the Bible because, well, you just have a hard time understanding it. It's easy to do. You don't live in this time and place. These things you hold in your hands that we would call a Bible are a very, very new invention in the history of God's people. Nobody had these just kind of floating around before the 1500s. They were far too expensive. Not only that, but in the time of the writer here, you were not allowed to have a copy of the Scriptures. They were so immaculately kept and read and guarded that the only time that you would hear something like this is when you would go to the temple. Now, this was what we call an oratory culture. They did not read they listened, they sang songs. So they had vast portions of Scripture memorized, but when they would draw close to the temple to listen, it would be to listen to God's Word. Now, what is the sacrifice of fools? Well, that was just those who came to worship to go through the motions. We might title these folks the partakers of old-school civil religion. Um, I'm a Jew. I do what Jews do. What is that? I go to the temple. I look on the list. I make this much money. Got to sacrifice this thing for this sin. It's a very simple flow chart. I get my animal. I go take it in the temple. Priest does the thing, little magic thing. He puts, I put my hand on his head. Somehow, that does something then that animal's killed, and I'm good. That would be the sacrifice of fools. And it's easy. First of all, we should say it's very common in the Bible that that happens. Unfortunately, we see that it's very easy to just get into the rhythm of the deal. Uh, God's people are often condemned for just kind of going through the motions. This isn't the first time something like the sacrifice of fools has been brought up. It's easy for us to look at such a thing and go, ah, those backward idiots killing animals 
throwing blood all over the place. What a bunch of heathens. You know what? Thank God I got Jesus. I'm going to roll up to church at exactly 9.55, walk in the door, sit in the same seat after I get my same exact beverage slash snack or not, because I'm better than everybody else. Then I will sing the same songs at the same tones, thinking the same things. I will begin to plan my lunch at the same exact hour, and then I will proceed from this place to my desired place of eating and then I will go home and do the same exact thing until next week rolls around. Friends, here's the shocking thing when we read the Bible too often, is at the same time it is so different than us. Like, just read about the sacrifices and kind of get grossed out. Like, however grossed out you are, it's not nearly as gross as it was. Or just, like, pick up some roadkill on the way home and set it on fire, right? Don't do that. That's probably illegal. But... <laughs> If you just want to get, like, when the cops come to your house and they go, what are you doing? Just tell them, like, my pastor said that I need to get a better appreciation for the sacrifices in Israel. So I decided to light this pile of dead cats on fire. <laughs> that probably won't go well. I'll probably get in trouble, too, so don't do that. But it would give you a better idea, right? Here's maybe a better idea. Cut your own hair or somebody else's if you want to get real interesting and just light it on fire right? Outside, not inside. Kids, this is adult-only <laughs> suggestion. Again, I do not want to get in trouble for any of this. It is a disgusting kind of world where it's just like, man, but it would make sin a much more visible, kind of tangible thing. It's easy to look at this time and go, I don't even barely understand this. But at the same time, you look at this kind of sacrifice of fools and goes, man, our sacrifice might be a little different. Our approach to the temple, the church might be a little bit different. But the reality is, is that so often we just go through the motions. Friend, I wonder if that's you this morning. If I were to ask you honestly, why'd you come to church today? Well, I mean, it's like Sunday and nothing better to do, and it's what I'm generally accustomed to doing. I'm an American. It's what a lot of us do. I've been doing it for a while. Grandma taught me to do this. Now let me say that all of those reasons are not inherently wrong. It's a good thing to be part of a tradition. The problem is, is when tradition is all you got, which is the very problem going on here. Friend, the problem with the fools is that they come to worship thinking they have already got it all figured out. Notice, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. That might be the saddest part of the civil religion, folks. In our day, they might be compared to those who desire to teach the Ten Commandments in a public place for no other reason than the fact that, well, we should just have them. Now, whether or not we should have the Ten Commandments in a public place is a different debate for a different day, but if the only reason that anybody's got it is just because that's just what we've always done, just to go through the motions. What the fools needed and what the fools need today is to hear God's word. I wonder 
Are you willing to listen? Now, let me, let me warn you. Listening to God's word is a dangerous thing. Some of us could have a kind of testimony time to this. To pay attention to what the Bible is telling us to do and how it is calling us to be in the world is a dangerous thing because it will probably, not maybe, it will probably force you to change your life. You ever, you ever had that? Let me just, let's just have a crowd participation event. Raise your hand if you have ever heard or read God's word and as a result gone, oh shoot, I got to change. Raise your hand. All right, good. Woo! Lower your hand. If not, start reading the Bible. Um, or just keep listening to this because we're going to get there. If we haven't got there yet, we're going to get there. As you read God's word, you're, you are confronted if you are willing to hear. These people just came to burn stuff because that's what they were supposed to do. Friends, it's easy to get into this habit. Maybe you find yourself in this habit this morning. The hard part about this is it's not a task for a day. It's the task of a lifetime to constantly sit under God's word and go, okay, big book, big fool, that would be me. I'm going to sit under this word and constantly be shaped by it into the person that God wants me to be. We always ought to be of the opinion, like John Owens, or uh, nope, Newton said, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but it goes something like this, uh, I am not who I want to be. I know what I am, and thank God I am not what I once was. We ought to see those three stages, the past, present, and future of our lives, and go, whoo, every time you get discouraged about yourself, you look backwards, and go, oh, I made it this far. Every time you get prideful, just look forwards all the way to Jesus and go, I ain't got there yet. Then go, okay, so this is, this is where I am in this place, wherever this place happens to be. However far along you think you might be in the Christian life, or how far behind you might be in the Christian life, the reality is, is that we ought to continually sit under God's word and go, I do not want to be participating in the sacrifice of fools. How long to listen and be changed by God's word. Maybe you're not a believer here this morning and you're wondering what all of this talk about God's word is. It's my prayer truly this morning that you would, in hearing this word, be worked on by God in such a way that you go, I don't even know what I am doing. But it seems as if God's word is speaking. I don't even know what that means. But something is compelling me to know more about this God. I do not want to be doing the sacrifice of fool's business, that's for sure. And friend, if you're here this morning, you go, I think I've been participating in the sacrifice of fools. Well, first of all, just thank God that you're still coming. And then, in seeing this, take the preacher's advice and draw near to listen. Whatever the case may be, in all our lives, I pray that God does His work now and forever through His Word. We are not only called to guard our steps, but be not rash with our mouths. Yeah, I'll speak for personal experience here on this one. Uh, don't start laughing now. This isn't the joke. I haven't got the joke yet. Some of us have a harder time doing this than others. See, laugh with me, not at me, right? 
Y'all know it. We could. We, I yes. Guilty. I think we all, to some degree, have a problem controlling our mouths. There's one motivating factor in the task of being slow to speak in worship. Because in worship, you are speaking to God, who is far, far beyond you. You ever wonder about that? This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Do you understand where God is? Like the distance between you and God. This is one thing that we as Protestants, as Bible-believing Christians, have a hard time grasping. I think there's a, a good reason for why we have a hard time grasping it. I think the reason we have a hard time grasping it is because we believe in Jesus. See, and Jesus is truly our friend. He is the head of the church. He is the Savior. He is the one who walks with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. God is as near to us as the Word of God is spoken, but while all that is wonderful, beautiful, and true, the reality is, is that God is so different than you than you cannot even conceive of Him apart from Him revealing Himself to you. Whatever you imagine God to be, it's wrong. Whatever God's Word even says about Him is just trying to help us understand that which is impossible to understand. God's nearness, friends, does not diminish his bigness in any way, shape, or form. When you are speaking to God, you are speaking to the one who made all things. This line here in the book of Ecclesiastes reminds me of something similar to what Jesus said. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Friend, God already knows what you need and want. You cannot bend God's will towards yours by just going on and on about it. He is not persuaded by our eloquence or the duration of our prayers. Does that mean that we should pray as short of prayers as possible? Hey God, what's up? Thanks. Peace. Not necessarily. What it means is that before we just go off and saying things to God, we've got to remember who He is and who we are and the vast distinction between the two. This applies not only to our prayers, but think about what we do in worship as we speak to God. It would apply to the songs that we sing, to the prayers that we pray, all the liturgy stuff, the order of worship stuff that we have going on here. Why is it that we put so much time into all of that? You might not know how much time we put into it, hours depending on the week. The, the, the service leader writes all these things, puts them all in order, trying to think about how they relate to the passage. Diana chooses the songs, reading the passage and saying, okay, 
Sometimes it's very clear, oftentimes it's not. How, how, what song should we sing? The songs that go on the list are reviewed and reviewed by the elders here going like, should, is this something we should sing out loud? Why? Because we're speaking towards God. Probably important that what we say is right, good, helpful, and true. One great place to see the importance of what we do out loud in worship is seen in the passage that we read this morning from Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. I'll I'll read it again. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul is driving at the unity that Christians have in Jesus and thus ought to demonstrate with one another. What is so important is to see that this unity all revolves around what God has done for his people in Jesus. The fact that in Jesus we have been forgiven from our sins, that we have been given peace with God and given access to God. Those things should drive us to use our words carefully because it is what God has done by himself in order for us to come near to him. There's not a license of just free reign to come to God and be like, well, since I've been made right with you or whatever by Jesus, I could just do whatever I want. Wow, look at the fact that God has made a way for us to come to Him. How can we even begin to express thankfulness? How can we even begin to respond in gratitude to such a thing? It's hard to even conceive of. And singing and praying and everything else we do as we gather together, we are magnifying God and edifying each other. What a glorious thing it is to be made one in Jesus and to speak carefully before God about who He is for His glory and our good. So as we come to worship, we should guard our steps. We should be not rash with our mouths. And number four, verses four and five, we should pay what we vow. The third thing the preacher encourages us to do is be quick in regards to what we vow before God. This is one example of how we can speak in the presence of God. Yet it seems to apply to all of our speech. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Have you ever spoken to God, truly pouring your heart out to him, telling him something like how much you desire to change how much you desire to do for someone and then completely neglected to do it. 
I don't have a show of hands on that one, but I would imagine that all of us would be in that camp. All right, I see that hand. Um, this, this is the way it goes, right? You're in worship. God has spoken to you in his word. Maybe you've stopped doing the sacrifice of fools. You've heard the word. You go, oh, yes, I, God, help me to do X. Then you leave and you go, what am I eating for lunch? It's a fine question, just don't forget the first part. I know I've done this. Friends, what we purpose to do before God, or what we know we should do before God, we should do now, not later. We could also similarly have a testimony time of not just people who have done this, but has, who have suffered as a result marriages that hopefully are better now, but that were squandered for days, months, years as a result of both people going, I know I should change. God's word is calling me to change. I will not change. People vowing to God, I, I desire to be generous than not being generous and wrapped up in consumerism. Friends, be careful what you vow. It comes with a better than statement of verse 5. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let me tell you how I took this kind of advice for years. I, I, I heard um, people growing up say, you know what? Don't promise your kids anything you're not willing to do for them. If you promise them you're going to do something, you better do it. Same kind of general thing the preacher is saying here. Here's how I interpreted that lovely wisdom. Just don't ever promise your kids anything, and you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I want to get a show of hands, but I guess that we could have some testimonies on that one as well. That's not what the preacher is driving at. This is wisdom literature. It's causing us to think. It is better that you don't vow anything than you vow something and don't pay it. The reality is you should vow things, because that's what you're supposed to do, and then you should pay it. Get busy now. Be, this is, here it is. Ready? Here is the wonderful, profound advice from the book of Ecclesiastes. Be responsible. Like, Man, my parents have been telling me that ever since I was six. Yes. Just got to follow it. This is the worst part about having kids sometimes, is that you tell them things, and you go, you, it come, as it's coming out of your mouth, you go, oh, shoot, I should listen to that, right? <laughs> yeah, so do that. And you go off into your room going, oh, man. <laughs> Be the kind of person that does what they ought to do. We ought to be the people who do what we say we will do in all areas of life, especially when it comes to what we say to God. Here's my main reason for doing so. Because that's what God has done for you. Do, do you realize that God didn't have to say jack to you and me, but he has, it's contained in here. And everything that God said he would do, everything he vowed he would do to us, even though we do not deserve anything at all, he has done. 
God has held up his end of the bargain, including saving and redeeming people like you and me. Who are we to not then respond in kind and simply do what we say we will do before God? Friends, we should guard our steps. We should not be rash with our mouths. We should pay what we vow. And lastly, in verses 6 and 7, we should let not our mouths lead us into sin. This final exhortation could be summed up like this. Be a person of truthful speech or else. The idea of saying something was a mistake, verse 6. And it says, let your mouth not lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Uh, we don't often claim things to be a mistake these days in our culture. We claim them to be jokes. Oh, I was just joking. Now, sometimes this is true. I, this will not surprise you. I've gotten in rather significant amounts of trouble as time has gone by. But I, go, I was just joking. Like that, I said that seriously. And people go, yeah, I'm still offended, though. You go, well, but it was a joke. Um, it doesn't fix everything. But then there's the other ones, you know, the, the ones where you say you're joking, which is supposed to be the kind of thing. This is the worst case of it. Let's just put it in terms of six-year-olds again, because it's easier to accept when it's not you, unless you're six in here, in which case, buckle up. Here it is. Ready? You, 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 are, you are being observed secretly by your parents, at which point your brother, sister, friend, mortal enemy, right? Those are not mutually exclusive categories. Has something that you want, and then you punch them in the face. At which point your parent goes, Jeremy Christopher Meeks! And you turn around and you go, I was just joking! Your brother, sister, friend, mortal enemy is on the ground with probably nothing going on but screaming that they're probably bleeding to death or something because that's what kids do. You go, what in what world? That's the sickest joke of all time. What do you mean? It's, a, it's not a joke. And we look at that, we go, kids these days, how often have we said things and go, oh, I was just joking. Or said something to that effect. Oh, I was, I, I was kidding. I, I wasn't serious. Thinking the whole time, oh shoot, oh shoot, oh shoot, oh shoot. How do I get out of this? God's people, friends, are to be a people who speak truthfully to God and to others. Notice that the preacher is clear on the results that one can expect from speaking untruthfully. Verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Again, very practical advice. Why should you speak truthfully? Because God hates liars and ordinarily destroys them and what they do. Very practical advice. Again, God, heaven, you, earth. Let your words be few, and whatever comes out of your mouth, do it. These are the kinds of things that 
honestly, I wrestled with for a long time in, in, in Christianity because of a false understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, I used to think, some of you might be here this morning thinking, you see, I'm, but I, here's the thing, that's all nice and good and everything, and maybe somebody else should do that, but I am saved by Jesus. I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I know that sounds creepy, it's Christianese, nobody understands it, but it's true, and I am going to heaven when I die. I don't even know what it's like, I don't know what my new body's going to be like, I don't know if I'm going to get to make pizzas in heaven, but I'm going there, and it is going to be amazing. I'm good to go, therefore the way I live my life doesn't matter. Friends, that's from the pit of hell, just so we're all clear. The, the other reaction is going, wait, hold on, hold on. Then does that mean that what I do gets me into heaven? I thought that's what, I, that's not true. Go, mm, right. But it's a false dichotomy, you see, because the reality is those who have been brought into the community of the people of God who are allowed to worship at the temple of God are only one type of people. You know who that is? The people of God. Those whom God has made his own. You see, this word this morning does not apply to you in any way, shape, or form if you are not a Christian. You are accountable to the God of everything, and your rejection of him will lead to terrible consequences. But the reality is, everything I'm saying here about how to go to church only applies to those who are Christians. Therefore, if you go, oh, I am being brought under conviction, shouldn't I just throw this off on Jesus and not do anything about it? That is to say, the one that brought me into this is responsible for that, and I don't care about what he wants me to do. Instead, what we should say is, holy smokes, I have been brought into this thing. Way more profound than any Jew could have ever imagined by God's work in his own son. Therefore, I ought to be a truthful person. There are practical, terrible consequences for not being a truthful person. Why would I ever want to be anything other than a truthful person? If you're a liar here this morning, then know this. It will not go well for you if you lie, and it will not go very well for you if you start telling the truth. That's the practical reality of it. Especially if you're sunk in deep. Again, you ain't going to have to raise your hand this morning, but I imagine that statistics and all that, somebody's buried knee-deep right now. Just praying and hoping to God. And if that's not you this morning, then you've probably been there before. You know that feeling? Just like deep down in the, just your guts, just 24-7 going, oh shoot, oh shoot, oh shoot, they're going to catch me. See, it's not just the destruction of God. Living in this untruthful way just drives you into insanity. The reality is, is that those who speak untruths sometimes get away with it. This is wisdom literature, it's not law. This idea that God hates those who speak falsely and destroys the work of their hands. You might go, like, look, there's lots of people speaking falsely out there, and God's not doing squat with them. Shouldn't, I'm, I might get away with it, you might, and go to hell as a result. Friends, the reality is, is that the kindest thing that God can do sometimes is knock us down in our lies in order that we would see the reality of who we are and turn back to him. It's not easy to tell the truth. 
but it's far harder and more painful to live under the shadow of lies. My friends, this morning the preacher has gone to church and helped us figure out how to go and what to do when we get there. The wisdom is eminently practical. It's also eminently convicting. And so often we find ourselves coming to church in the wrong way with the wrong motives, don't we? So often we find ourselves speaking instead of listening to God closely. And so often we find ourselves saying things to God and others that we don't actually mean. And friends, the good news for us this morning is that we live under a truthful God who has provided salvation in Jesus Christ for all who have trusted in Him, as He has always promised to do. Those of you who feel under the conviction of such words coming from this book ought to simply respond appropriately. How? Listen to God's word. Speak little. Do what you say you'll do. All the while recognizing that God in his infinite grace continues to be gracious to you. Friends, we cannot outdo the grace of God. Therefore, this morning, we should remember that in light of what God has done for us, we should listen much, speak little, and do what we say. Let's pray. We thank you for your word and pray that as you reveal our own hearts to us, that you would Help us remember that whether we are doing this or not, this is the call of your people from the beginning of time until now. This way of living is not, it was for them way back then, the very practical way in which we live our lives now. We pray for your forgiveness for those of us who this morning realize that we're just going through the motions. We're wrapped up in a web of lies. We've said so many things that we would do and have not done them. Lord, help us to speak truthfully, to do what we say we'll do, to listen carefully to your word. We thank you that these are words directed at those who have already been redeemed. We pray that that as we battle with sin, we would never let redemption be a means of our sin. And at the same time, we would never allow our sin to convince us that we have not been redeemed. Lord, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that not only drives conviction into our hearts, but also gives us the ability to do that which you have called us to do. A gift assured for us by Jesus Christ who has given himself up for us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.